Hello there, and welcome to episode 15 of Words with Writers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Canadian Authors Association, Toronto Branch. We are a membership-based organization for writers in all levels, areas, and genres of the writing profession. We are your hosts, Brandy Tanner. And Chris Gorman. Thank you for being back with us this month for our spotlight on the 2021 Fred Kerner Book Awards. Today, we'll be all about the six shortlisted authors who all read from their phenomenal books at the CAA Annual General Meeting on Saturday, July 24th. That's right, Chris, and we're so pleased to be presenting those readings on this month's podcast episode. In fact, we are keeping this show all about those authors and their readings, and we are going to jump right into it without our usual preamble. What do you think, Chris? Are we ready for our Fred Kerner Book Award shortlisted author readings? Absolutely, Brandy. Let's not keep any of our listeners waiting. Here we go. Book Award is awarded annually to a Canadian author's member who has the best overall book published in the previous calendar year, including fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Fred Kerner was a devoted and longtime CAA member, an honorary president of the association until his passing in 2011 at 90. Fred was an author, journalist, editor, teacher, and mentor. He wrote more than 12 books and also wrote for magazines, radio, and TV, and he gave unstintingly of his time to assist emerging writers. So the Fred Kerner Book Award offers a $400 prize and a one-year membership in Canadian authors. Our first reader, Elke Babicki from West Vancouver, BC, Identity from Holocaust to Home. Elke Babicki, MED, RCC, has been a consultant to corporations and a clinical counselor in private practice in Toronto and Vancouver, Canada, for more than 30 years. She has led workshops and sessions in Europe and Canada to help thousands of people claim more power in their lives. Elke was recognized in 2011 with the Women of Worth Leader of the Year Award for her work in supporting and inspiring women across the globe. She lives with her husband, Matt, an engineer and inventor by the ocean in West Vancouver, British Columbia. Identity was published in German in November 2017 with great success. So over to you, Elke. Thank you so much, Margaret for the lovely introduction. So the section I'll be reading is actually quite an emotionally difficult one, but uh, it describes an important uh, section in the book, how my dad, Alex, saved himself from being gassed 
about six weeks before the end of the war. And that was a time when the Nazis started to do away with the evidence and kill more people more furiously than ever. So this book, uh, this section describes this. Alex scrambled out from among the dead. He left the now empty camp and stumbled as fast as he could along fields and through small patches of forest. He remembered choking around with his brothers and chasing them once upon a time in a place very similar. The memory gave him strength. He kept going until he stood in front of a field of green wheat that looked just like his father's field. Tears ran down his cheeks. He was back with the living. With his last bit of strength in his 20-year-old body, Alex dragged himself to the small farmhouse that stood behind the field and banged on the wooden door with his fist. He heard steps approaching and the door opened. A rough-looking farmer in a hand-knitted sweater stood in front of Alex. The farmer's eyes went wide and he gasped and recoiled in shock, covering his eyes at the emaciated figure clinging to life. Dear God, how did you manage to get here? We heard rumors, terrible stories, whispers in the village, but we couldn't, it was impossible. We knew what would happen if the farmer turned white and sat, clutching the door frame with trembling hands. If any Nazis were in pursuit of this ghost-like creature at his door, he would be done for. His wife, wiping her hands on her apron, came to the door to see what was happening. She stumbled in shock at the nightmarish sight. Holy Jesus, have mercy on us, she hissed. And with a furtive look around, the farmer and his wife quickly dragged Alex inside. The door slammed and Alex leaned against it. The next section is my commentary on this. The Pichelhubers were the kind of people my dad had great admiration for throughout his life. Despite all what was done to him by the Nazis, dad admired these German people who lived by their principles. They brought him into their kitchen, made him bread soup and gave him something warm to drink. They bathed him and burned his striped clothes in the fireplace. Frau Pichelhuber prepared a room and made a fresh bed for him. And she and her husband put him to bed. For the first time in years, he was warm again. That night, Alex felt as if he was lying in his childhood room in his house in Vielo, and he slept more deeply than he had in five years. <clears throat> the Pichelhubers hit him for several weeks until the war was over, until his hair grew in 
and he gained weight. Then, after the official liberation by the Allies, they took him to Straubing to the hospital. Alex had found the right farmers. For the rest of his life, my father became emotional when he tried to advise me on what to look for in people. Never mind race or religion. There are good people and bad people in every country and wherever you go. Those with integrity are the real gems. Thank you. Thank you, Elke. That was a wonderful reading. Thank you. Our next shortlisted author is Morgan Christie of Brampton, Ontario, for her, with her book, These Bodies. Morgan Christie's work has recently appeared in Room, uh, Athlon, Hawaii Review, Little Patazette's Review, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, The Coil, Sport Literature Association, as well as others, and has been long listed for the Commonwealth Prize, nominated for two Pushcart Prizes, and a Best of the Net. Her poetry book, Variations on a Lobster's Tail, was the winner of the 2017 Alexander Posey Chapbook Prize, University of Central Oklahoma Press. And her second poetry chapbook, Sterling, was released by CW Books. Her first full-length short story manuscript, These Bodies, was published by Tolson Books and was featured in various outlets, including Poets and Writers, BuzzFeed, Forward Reviews, and others. Her most recent poetry chapbook, when they come was released by black sunflowers press 2021 and is featured in the forward arts foundation's national poetry day exhibit morgan your turn to read thank you margaret thank you so much and thank you brandy and diane thank you all of the caa for allowing for this wonderful event and for allowing us the opportunity to speak and Elke, thank you so much for that moving reading. I've always been so touched by people with this ability to share their nonfiction specifically because it is such an emotional and moving journey. So thank you for that. So today I'm going to share a small section based in the first story that I actually wrote in the collection. It's called Stone Fishing. And it's a sort of the turn in the story and where we start to see what's happened with one of the main characters who happens to be a 10 year old boy. So Stone Fishing. Lily stepped beside Grandpa and could see all that he saw. They had found Dog. Dog looked as though he had been there for such a long time. Lily first saw it as his eyes ran up and down the still animal, the same rouge hue that he had seen on the rock and on the stone step. But this hue was near the top of Dog's head, just above his left eye, and there was so much more. The hue had dried and settled. It had dripped down Dog's face and fallen onto the outer ring of his collar. His eyes were open. Willie saw the moonlight's reflection in them. I told you to stop throwing those rocks, Willie. Grandpa whispered. Willie felt the jolt that would occupy his arm and shoulder shift to his stomach as the weight of the rock suddenly became too heavy for him to carry. His knees began to tremble as a gust of wind blew as horrid a scent as he had ever smelt in his direction. He cringed as the aroma crept up his nose and traveled to the back of his throat where he tasted it. Willie tried to speak, but the words got stuck. You should have listened to me. 
Grandpa spoke firmly, and the lie flew out before Willie could catch it. But I did stop. Grandpa's eyes widened as Willie's transparency mutated to a time the old man found inexplicably difficult to bury, even after 40 years, to the time he sipped on anything that would blur the memory of the ex-wife that told him he'd never amount to more than a worthless weed farmer, to a time half his platoon charged onto a landmine before a cloud of orange and brown burst from the dirt and their limbs fell with the easy rain, to a time he was fired from a job second one for having booze on his breath during a scheduled inspection or to the time he begged his sister to take out a third loan on the farm he had secretly mortgaged 10 years earlier or to the time he thought of nothing more than rubbing bottles between his fingers and swallowing the harsh potency that made everything seem all right to the time he came home drunk after 10 hours of nothing but cheap bar beers and picked up his baby girl before tripping over a coffee table sending her flying headfirst into the solid oak floor he helped his father sand as a boy. To the lie he told his wife when she asked him about the bruise on the child's head the next day, as he watched her eyes widen as the flat-lined lie that she had seemed to sing in response, it has to stop. Grandpa looked at the lifeless dog then and back at his grandson. I told you it was dangerous. Grandpa yelled so fiercely, Willie stumbled back. His voice echoed far off into the field as the world suddenly became still. The wheat froze when Grandpa screamed, like it had never heard him scream before. It was as still as Willie had ever seen it. Its stalk straightened, stiffened up, afraid to move. The wind's howl became lost in the sound's remnants. It was scared, the wheat. It was scared of Grandpa. Willie looked into the shadows occupying Grandpa's face, but could not see the small tear formed in his left eye. They stood for a moment, over dog. They stood and watched each other in the darkness. They watched the faces they could not see clearly and listened to the wind they could no longer hear. Soon after, Willie lay in bed for hours, unable to sleep. Every time he closed his eyes, he imagined dog's paws the rouge hue settled in his fur, and the stunning stillness of the moon in his eye. He thought about what he said to Grandpa, that he had stopped throwing stones. And under the pale blue sheets, Willie shut his eyes and wished that the lie had been the truth. He wished and wished that it had been the truth, wished and wished that it wasn't a lie. Wished until he fell asleep as the sky grew bright and shifted into a subtle shade of orange. And I think that's my time. <laughs> Thank you, Morgan. Thank you. Our, our next shortlisted author is Vanessa Farnsworth of Creston, BC. For the, and her book is The Haw Eaters. Vanessa Farnsworth is a science journalist and fiction writer based in the BC interior. Her books include the memoir, Rain on a Distant Roof, a Personal Journey Through Lyme Disease in Canada, published by Signature Editions in 2013. The short story collection, The Things She'll Be Leaving Behind, published by Thistledown Press in 2018, and the historical novel, The Haw Eaters, published by Signature Editions in 2020. Her journalism has been published in many regional and national magazines, 
and her short fiction has appeared in literary journals in Canada and the United States, including the Dalhousie Review, Dandelion, Filling Station, The New Quarterly, Precipice, QWERTY, and Read Magazine. Her short story, Napoleon's Eyes, was nominated for the Journey Prize. Vanessa. Hello, and hello to everybody. I am going to start the story, do this reading from where the story begins. So this is the first line of the first chapter. Boyd leaves the government road and wonders, not for the first time, how anything riddled with so many stumps and displaced boulders can be considered a road by anyone who has ever actually seen one. It's pathetic, hopeless, a twisted ankle or busted kneecap waiting to happen. Boyd is in the process of proving his own theory when he makes the daring decision to evaluate his recent life choices, beginning with today's resolution to stumble along this bone rattler of a road, when on any other day God himself would have parted the skies to remind him that the only viable passage over the Manitoulin is through the freshly planted fields or along the Indian trails that snake through the bush. And Boyd would have heeded God's reminder because normally he has sense enough to travel along one of those tried and true routes. Boyd is also well aware that he normally possesses the wisdom to mind his own ever-loving business. But when you're one of the handful of lawmen on this entire godforsaken island, there are times when wisdom must bow down to duty. Like today. Yes, that's right. On this bright summer morning, Boyd is on official business and he feels strongly that his duty forbids him from taking any shortcuts, from approaching Brian through his oats, from arriving like a neighbor when performing the duties as an officer of the court. His mind is firm on that, and then it goes blank. It does this sometimes when he hears or sees something he cannot fully assimilate, like Eleanor Bryan. Boyd has arrived at Bill Bryan's homestead, and he immediately spots the missus out heaving and huffing in her vegetable patch. Her hair is wild, and her face is stern. She's pitching manure from her rickety wheelbarrow onto a stinking pile of the same. Boyd slows his pace, partly because of the stench, but mostly because there's something about this woman that never fails to freeze the thoughts in his brain. This is what's happening now. Boyd has learned certain things about Ellen O'Brien over the years, the most important of which is that her soul is carved from granite. He tangled with her once, can't rightly remember over what, but Boyd vowed then and there that it would never happen again. He would rather be trapped in a sack full of starving rats than go another round with Brian's she-devil of a wife. A woman that wretched goes a long way to explaining why Bill Bryan is the way he is. Stubborn, hateful, ancient. And Bill is the reason Boyd is here. Well, actually, Charlie is the reason Boyd is here. But to get to Charlie, Boyd must go through his father. And to get to Bill, Boyd must first pass by Brian's wretched wife and her stinking mountain of manure. Such is the fate God dealt him today. Luckily, Eleanor and her manure pile are located near the side of the house that's away from the road. Even better, it's away from Boyd, which is just about the smallest mercy God could have granted, 
but it's mercy just the same. Even so, Boyd wouldn't be Boyd if he could help but notice Eleanor's forearms. With each pitch of the fork, they're exposed like the sun at noon. Not decent by anyone's measure to see so much of a woman's flesh. But it would be unlike Eleanor to aim a thought at decency. She'd say it's a luxury that only the rich can afford, and she'd more likely than not spit when she said it, mentally bust him upside the head. Eleanor's arms. Boyd has been staring at them longer than would be considered wise for anyone who's not actually an owl. An alarm goes off in the lawman's head as he realizes the mistake his eyes have been making. He casts them skyward, eastward, and all around. He's got to focus. There'll be hell to pay if anyone spots his attention stalling on another man's wife. The Bush families will get the wrong impression, because they always do, deliberately, predictably, as if there isn't enough hardship on this island without setting fire to the harshest of rumors each and every time the opportunity arises. The kind of rumors that must be answered by a gunshot, a beating, an accidental drowning. The end. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you. Excellent reading. Our next shortlisted author is Laurie Honnell, Calgary, Alberta. And Laurie's book is Vermin. Laurie Honnell is the author of two novels, Love Minus Zero, published by Oberon in 2008, and After You've Gone, published by Thistledown in 2014, and two short story collections, Nothing Sacred, published by Thistledown in 2009, and Vermin Stories, published by Enfield and Wazenti in 2020. Laurie's work has aired on CBC Radio and has appeared in The Fiddlehead, Joyland, Prairie Fire, Room, The Antigonish Review, The Saturday Evening Post, and many other publications in North America, Australia, and the UK. Laurie teaches creative writing and was author in residence at Calgary Public Library in 2020. Laurie. Thanks so much, Margaret. I'd like to take just a moment to thank Canadian Authors Association. It's such an honor to be a finalist for the Fred Kerner Award. So what I'm going to read this morning is the opening of the first story in Vermin. The story is called Dominion. July 1917. I open my eyes and instead of my flowered bedroom walls, I see white all around me. For a second, I am disoriented, afraid. I read the tag above my head. Abercrombie and Fitch Outfitters, New York. Then my fog clears and it comes to me. This is Tom's new tent. Completely waterproof, he said. I see beads of condensation on the other side of the heavy silk. He warned me not to touch the walls or water would wick through, but I can't resist. My finger comes away damp and the drops jiggle and slide down the outside. The sun is not completely up yet, and already my upper lip and the nape of my neck are moist. Another muggy day. Last night, getting into the lake was all there was for it, never mind the leeches. Between the heat and the mosquitoes and the black flies, it was all we could do. I blush a little to think of it, but at the same time, the memory is very pleasurable. The sound of Tom chopping wood outside breaks my reverie. Much as I would like to linger here a little longer and think of yesterday, another whole day is before us. The rest of our lives is before us. 
I try to forget the heat as I put on my camisole, shirt waist, drawers, stockings, petticoat, and skirt. My boots are outside and I unfasten the ties at the front of the tent. He stands in front of the fire he has started and smiles. Good morning, he says. He's dressed, has already combed his shock of dark hair. Good morning. Coffee? Yes, please. The hot and sleepy Sunday morning before, I discreetly wiped perspiration from my lip and hairline with the back of my glove as father and mother and I listened to Reverend McAllister's sermon. God gave man dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air, he said, over the cattle and over all the earth. He gave man dominion over his helpmate, woman. God gave man dominion over all of nature, that he might subjugate it, that he might profit from it, that he might order nature as he sees fit, that he might control it. I looked at my parents' blank faces. No face around us had any expression, save possibly boredom. A few of the ladies fanned themselves. Mary Carlson's baby began to fuss and squall, and she whisked him outside. I wondered if I was the only one questioning the sermon. I am certain that I was the only, only one questioning it. Later, as I tended the garden, I thought about the Reverend's words again, about man subjugating nature. It certainly happened here with the forests, even in Algonquin Park, being logged at a great rate. Mother's garden is nature subjugated on a smaller scale. First, I pulled up all the weeds, the wild plants that have no business in the garden. Then I filled the watering can with rainwater collected in the barrel and watered the rows of onions, potatoes, and carrots we'll store in the cellar, and the beets, scarlet runner beans, and peas that mother and I will can in the fall. Even the petunias mother has planted in front of the just whitewashed veranda are under strict control. They are planted in neat rows, exactly 12 inches apart, deadheaded and trimmed regularly. Although these plants are grown simply for pleasure, they are tamed and domesticated by man, cross-pollinated over and over quite purposefully to obtain the precise color and scent desired. Still, I noticed the petunia's perfumed velvet trumpets, a shockingly sensual fuchsia with a deeper private purple within, still tremble with the slightest breeze. They haven't bred that out of them yet. I know just how Tom would paint them. And I'm going to stop there. Thank you so much. Thank you, Laurie. That was excellent. And last but certainly not least is our shortlisted author, Ed Seward from Georgetown, Ontario. And his book is Fair. Ed Seward completed his first novel, Son of Jack Nasty, in 2011, as yet unpublished. Since then, he has written a number of short stories, screenplays, including Mother-Daughter Happiness, which was a screenplay finalist at the 2019 Pasadena International Film Festival. His novel Fair was published by the Porcupine's Quill in 2020. After 30 years in the corporate world, he now spends his time cashing pension checks, writing and volunteering with Canadian authors Toronto. Thank you. He and his wife Barb split their time living in Georgetown, Ontario and Santa Monica, California. Well, they did pre-COVID and plan to return once the world has this pandemic under control. Ed. 
Thank you. Thanks, Margaret. And again, thank you uh, to uh, the CAA, as the other nominees have, have said. It's great to to have such awards to be able to uh, to highlight books, uh, whether novels or nonfiction or uh, uh, poetry. So I think we all thank you. And again, my congratulations to all the other nominees and for your wonderful readings. Just a brief reading from chapter two. All of the uh, chapters are actually very brief in, in the novel. And this chapter will give you Pretty good introduction to the protagonist, uh, Ian. Ian continues to plod through the sand, ignoring the grit collected in his ankle boots. He is ignored by topless men and near bottomless women, all glistening skin, some with the wet matted hair of salted swimmers. Ian taps his fingers upon his palm. Sometimes he stops and glances into the distance, past everyone, looking at no one while his fingers rest, then begin again their steady tap. Tap, tap, tap on the palm of his hand. Tappity, tap, tap. Ian's mind has always been a timeless sack of memories, movable, unbound, and open to the whims of the sea breeze. To Ian, until today, time has been unknowable. His memories are unorganized, mere snatches of life. Now, last week, last month, years gone by. Tappity tap tap. He leaves his memories to fly unfettered. He does not restrain their progress. His fingers stop tapping as he turns his other palm downward, using his previously tapping fingers to pull the cuff of his checkered shirt up his arm. He stares at the single stroke of black ink on the top of his wrist. He cresses the one gently, then begins to tap fingers on this black number. Tappity tap tap. This one now captured his time. Ian stops tapping, his arms falling to his sides. He begins again to move through the sand, his feet collapsing away from him at every step. He feels the dense light on the back of his neck as he crosses the smooth concrete bike path and walks through the children's playground near the park office. A cop sits in his black and white cruiser next to a vibrant orange recreation and parks truck. Seeing the cop makes Ian nervous, although the cop does not look at him. Ian dislikes policemen. He distrusts cops. He thinks, the detective will be back on the streets waiting for me. Ian steps onto a patch of grass and continues around the pebbled concrete basketball court, grunting with tall black men and tall black boys. He does not watch them. He moves off the grass and onto the promenade. Everyone calls it the boardwalk, but there are no boards. Promenade or boardwalk, it is packed with people and Ian wonders if it can still be a holiday or is it a Sunday? Until now, days named, holidays sorted into long weekends have been unimportant. Until now. Ian stops and briefly lifts his sleeve again and looks upon the black one, the beginning of his calendar. He lets the cuff fall back into place and moves along the Venice Beach boardwalk without boards. He shuffles through the streaming crowd of hot pink halter tops and khaki cargo shorts and bright yellow thongs and purple fishnet shirts. Long blonde hair rustles in the gentle sea breeze. Bald, sweaty heads glimmer in the same dense light that pounds the back of Ian's neck. He finds his way untouched through the throng and comes to rest near a friendly vendor of sunglasses and hats who does not bother Ian with threatening looks. Ian retrieves a cigarette from a knapsack pocket and lights the cigarette. He would offer one to the vendor, but he is busy with a customer. An old lady scuffs her way along the boardwalk without boards. Ian knows her, but not her name. She is very old and tiny and wrinkly and thickly tanned 
and almost naked in her lime green bikini. The old woman has a small brown mushy head. The first time Ian saw her head, he thought of an apple he once left on his bedside table when he was a boy. He went away with his mother and sister for many weeks, and when he returned, the apple was brown and mushy, and when he poked it, his finger disappeared into the decayed flesh. Ian does not acknowledge the old woman in the bikini as she scuffs past him. He looks nowhere as he taps the red ember end of his cigarette onto the palm of his hand. Tappity tap tap. End of chapter, end of reading. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Ed. And lastly, we are pleased to present the winner of the 2021 Fred Kerner Book Awards, Joanna Lilly. Joanna Lilly from Whitehorse, Yukon, and her book is Endlings. Joanna Lilly's fifth book and third poetry collection, Endlings, is all about extinct animals and was published by Turnstone Press in 2020. She's also the author of a novel, Worry Stones, published by Ronsdale Press, which was long listed for the Caledonia Novel Award, and a short story collection, The Birthday Books, published by Hagios Press. Joanna's other poetry collections are If There Were Roads, published by Turnstone Press, and The Fleece Era, published by Brick Books, which was nominated for the Fred Cogswell Award for Excellence in Poetry. Joanna has an MLit degree in creative writing from the universities of Glasgow and Strathclyde and is a Humber School for Writers graduate. <clears throat> Born in the south of England, Joanna lived in Wales and Scotland before moving to Canada. She now lives in Whitehorse, Yukon, where she's on the board of Yukon Words and is grateful to reside on the traditional territories of the Kwanundun First Nation and the Tan Kwakan Council. Welcome. Joanna. Hi everyone, thanks so much for the introduction and yes, my uh, land acknowledgement, thanks for including that. So yeah, I'm joining you from all the way from the Yukon and it's really a huge honor uh, to be with you all and to be uh, shortlisted for the Fred Kerner Award and thank you for all the association has done and Fred Kerner and his family as well. Thank you. So I'm going to read uh, two poems. And uh, the first one is about perhaps one of the most famous extinct animals, the woolly mammoth, and it kind of uh, explores the theme of de-extinction, which is uh, going on as we speak. There's an awful lot of research into this. So this is called Necrofauna. The elephant didn't ask to give birth to a woolly mammoth. Yet when the infant dropped to the concrete floor, she kicked it, pulled its head up, trunk to trunk until it breathed. She hoiked her daughter to her feet, nudged her from slippery blood and the splattered embryonic sac until she walked. The mother slid her trunk along her strange calf's hairy skin, sniffing her peculiar hump, her tiny ears. 
We think we know about elephants, their memories, matriarchies, their heavy hearts and brains, how they stay with the dead, and woolly mammoths, hundreds of them frozen in the north, melting in our laboratories. We know their chilly habitat, their four inch fat, the curved five meter tusks they dug with, the tough dry grasses they ground with blunt enamel teeth, the cat who ate them. What memories of the tundra steppe have been rebirthed? Will this new two breed yearn for cold or heat? Set free, will she go south or north? And the second poem I'm going to read is more just on the general theme of extinction and it's called, It Won't Hurt. It won't hurt letting all the animals go. That's the surprise. If you feel anything at all as you close the lid, you'll just feel terribly tired. If you feel anything at all as you walk on without closing the gate, you'll just feel terribly sad. You won't have to do anything different. You'll still sleep and eat as much as you can. You may even already be lying down. You can try it each night. Let each hoof, antennae, tail rise to the dark, invisible ceiling. When the exhale ceases, delay the inhale. Don't swallow. Let the fluids accumulate. Feel the finishing. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joanna. That was, that was really lovely. Thank you. Wow, weren't those some great readings, Chris? I was so happy that I was able to attend the annual general meeting and hear those in person. They were all just phenomenal writers and we're so pleased that the association is still able to put this book award on and really shine the spotlight on just the incredible authors that are our members. Absolutely, Brandy. I've already heard uh, Ed and Morgan read from their work a couple of times now, but this was my first time listening to Elkie and her reading was phenomenal, uh, as was Vanessa's and Lori's and for sure Joanna's. I actually had the honor of being able to read all, all of those shortlisted books and each one was just terrific. I do have to say Joanna Lilly's Endlings is just an amazing book of poetry. It really is. It's just, it gets right to the heart of things. These poems about extinct creatures. It's so important and topical right now. Everybody on the list was amazing, but absolutely her, her book was truly, truly a winner. Yeah, actually, I can't wait to read it. I'm going to have to catch up to you with reading. Yeah. <laughs>
Well, I encourage you to read them all. I encourage all our listeners, if you can get a copy, there, a lot of them are in our member book catalog. They're on the author's websites. They're on Amazon. Read these books. They're all incredible. Perfect. Well, on that note, we hope you had a wonderful time listening to these amazing writers. Please come back next month for our regular programming and to hear new writers for you to fall in love with. And just one quick note before we close the show. I know you've heard this before, but there's still time to have your book cover included in our centennial puzzle, showcasing our members' book covers. So subscribe to the membership book catalog to take advantage of this awesome promotion. You can see full details at canadianauthors.org slash national slash member dash book dash catalog. Awesome. Well, this ends our 15th episode of Words with Writers podcast. Thank you so much for being with us this month. And we return with a new episode on Saturday, August 28th. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye.